Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, my colleague Tom Kenny and myself, Ronnie O'Gorman, produce a page in the Galway Advertiser with Tom's photograph and a story from Galway's past. We contact each other beforehand to see what has been published that week. And our podcast today is That Conversation. Tom, good morning. How are you this lovely morning? Beautiful. Well, morning. Yeah. I am wonderful. I am listening to the birds here in Barna, and oh. uh, they I introduce know. every day now, and it's just magic. Okay. Are they still stopping traffic going down to Silver Strand? Um, yes. Yes, they are indeed. Yeah. Yeah. It's just they a don't want crowds. It's beautiful down there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that hill, that hill coming back up kills me. So <laughs> I don't go there very often. I, I bet. But recently, <laughs> I have I've been exploring with my grandchild um, the woods there and the whole development there. The big, um, the walks, uh, the yeah. river. It's absolutely beautiful. It's a wonderful. It is. It is. We're very cool. blessed. <laughs> and I mean, I'm looking facing the woods as I speak, and. It's kind of magic, yeah. Yeah, it's, they really We are. had to work hard to protect the woods. I remember you telling uh, me, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. there was a neighbour here who wanted to, uh, he, he had actually bought an option on the woods, right. and he wanted to build 68 houses. Oh, Lord above, I know. But we battled against him anyway, yeah. and happily we won the war. And mm. then they extended the corporation boundary, and yeah. uh, the city I remember bought that. the woods. I remember that. There was the same in Dangan, too. There's lovely woods there in Dangan, leading into Cunningham's nurseries, and there was a move there to knock down the trees. Oh, my goodness. I was glad the, the residents fought, fought off the developers, yeah. whoever they were, and those trees have been saved. Very important to have them. Anyway, Tom, listen, what about this week? Have you anything in mind? Uh, for this week's paper? Uh, yes, I am right. Um, well, I'm using an old photograph of the Clada, of <coughs> a part of the Clada that was known as Clada Parade. Excellent. If you um, <clears throat> if you stand facing the church in the Clada, <coughs> excuse me, and you walk up along the wall uh, beside it. Yes. Uh, I, I can't remember what the, that road is called now, but if as you get to the top of it, just a narrow little road. Uh, that the, the road I'm talking about was known as Dogfish Lane. Uh, and when you get to the top of that, that's the area of my photograph. Wow. But I'm using a photograph of the Clada because I came across an interesting article. It was published in the Irish Times in January 1861. Remember, right. this is just... <coughs> Literally 10, after 12 years after, yeah. after the famine, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's, ta- it's, it's copied from a Galway newspaper, yeah. but it's talking about how the clatter has gone into decline. And yeah. this is because um, in the mid-19th century, new, new techniques were brought in, really, in terms of sea fishing. Uh, but the Clada men stuck to tradition and decided their way was the best. <laughs> they didn't move with the times. Yeah. And as they fell behind the times, big trawlers were coming into the bay, which yeah. was, of course, their hunting ground. Yeah. And uh, the catch was going down, etc. Yeah. And the, the, this um, article begins. And remember, this was in eight, 1861. 
20 years ago, this fishing village, for which outdoor relief is now deemed necessary, was the greatest source of profit and employment to the people of Galway. It was the wealth-producing quarter of the town, and not alone the town of Galway, but many parts of the interior of Ireland felt the benefits of the successful industry of the Tlada fishermen. The harvest fishing season, which began in August and ended in November, produced a very large accession to wealth to the country. The number of cadgers leaving the town for the interior averaged about 150 daily. And while those peripatetic dealers in fish were thus numerously employed, the foremost merchants we had were occupied in filling their stores with herrings. And even the fishery board on some occasions were known to barrel quantities. So abundant frequently was the take that all the cargoes of salt provided by the importers of that article did not suffice. And it had to be brought overland from Limerick and other places. But that's talking about a major industry, really. Yeah, it is, Tom. It is. Directly a huge number of... um, And it goes on to say that how things have changed. We've seen as many as 20 or 30 boats building along the shore. Yeah. The carters bringing the timber from our native woods and ships, yeah. carpenters, etc., so, working away. Some of those boats actually came from Scotland, um, yes. where, where the fishing industry was very well organized in the 19th century. But, Tom, you, you, you just say, you're, you know, this is an article 10 years after the famine. The famine really ruined the Clada fishermen. I... I, I I read and I remember reading it very strongly, um, The Great Hunger by Cecil Woodham Smith. And she speaks quite a lot about the clatter. That extraordinarily as it sounds, you're quite right to say there were heavy catches brought in. But when the famine came, the clatter man, generally speaking, felt fish was not really the right food to live on. And they actually sold or pawned their fishing gear and ships and clothes to buy potatoes and food they thought was more substantial. And uh, it, it was so remarked on when the Quakers came to Galway and they saw this, they went back to the fishermen and saying, look, we will pawn, we, we will pay the, the pawn on your equipment to get you back to sea. But whatever it was, they kind of lost that ambition. And the famine was so, it was so demoralizing. It was so exhausting and unbearable that they just acquiesced to a kind of a malaise and gave up fishing for that crucial period. And um, there's a famous... um, Quaker, I remember reading about him with the name James Hack Took. It's a wonderful name. This right. was a man from Bradford. But <coughs> they, you know, were urgently pleading with the Cladamen to go back to sea, but in vain, in vain. So I'm wondering, did that kind of malaise continue, you know, to the period of your article? Oh, I think without question. And yeah. um, just to mention Took, did you he hear that, though? Huge, you hear hugely significant in the history of, and in particularly of Connemara. Yes, I, uh, I The people of Clifton, they should erect a statue to that man. Well, I've often thought we should honour the Quakers. We owe them yeah. a debt. Oh, indeed, they did. Uh, but yes, it did. The, the decline continued, and it may have been 
uh, as you say, part of the loss of spirit uh, during the famine, the loss of personnel, yes. the loss of a lot of children, because a lot of clever children died mm. and are buried beside the church. <clears throat> uh, but I think an awful lot of it was to do with they're sticking to the old traditional way yeah. of fishing. Yeah. I can uh, imagine. Yeah. yeah, and it was just sad. Now, yes. the cladder itself, I mean, it, it, the photograph is a beautiful photograph. There's hens and chickens running around the little. It's a very rough street surface. Uh, yeah. I've managed to name some of the people who lived there at the time. But it's a very romantic kind of a look at the cladder. <laughs> and it's also indicative of why so many artists and writers and later photographers were attracted to the cladder yes. because here was a collection of three or 400 thatched cottages, working class people living in these cottages, often with big families. And it looked very romantic, but of course the reality was quite different. And when it came to demolishing the old cladder fishing village, there was a huge amount of debate and argument on each side, you know, <clears throat> but the people, and I suppose it's indicative of the kind of times we're in it now. Yeah, <clears throat> it was the medical people who finally called the shots. Uh, there was TB there. It was, it was, because they say, yeah, it was absolutely yeah. unsanitary. Sadly. And uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. And uh, it was an awful shame, really. But um, anyway, it's gone. But Yes. Now, the curious thing about the cladder is that this kind of great independent spirit that the Cladonians had still exists. They still have it. (coughs) They do indeed. Yeah. (coughs) Excuse me. They regarded themselves as different. (laughs) And they were. Yeah, they were. They were quite different. uh, Yes. But they still insult one and you insult the whole lot of them. You know? <laughs> and it's still there to this day. I'm told if you move into the cladder today, it'll take uh, several generations before you'll be accepted as a cladder person. That's probably an exaggeration now. But yeah, uh, you're quite right. right. And I, I love that little bit of independence. And don't forget, they were outside the walls of the town. You looked across the water and there was the medieval there were, town there were. With walls and its gates. And this was the real native Irish people that were kind of ostracized. And to survive, they developed their own trade in fishing. They had their own king, as you know yourself, and uh, had their own sense of loyalty and royalty, which I think is... Well, indeed, they had a ring, their, their own ring, that uh, which is oh, identified with the planet. They're wonderful. And they all... Yeah as well yeah but yeah there was a, a lot of kind of intermarriage between clada people and connemara people oh. <coughs> excuse me this would have yeah. to do with the boat traffic between connemara and yes. uh and the village but yes. uh yeah it was significant and until fairly recently uh there was still a lot of irish spoken in the clada that's true. That's true. Um, you were saying about the Quakers and Connemara. Of course, the um, the famous Quakers family out there were a family called Ellis's, uh, James and Mary Ellis. Uh, they set up a little uh, commune, if you like, in uh, Letter Frack. Letter Frack was a crossroads in Connemara at that time. And they built a kind of a village there. They built a school and they... This was during the famine times now. They collected money from Bradford and from Manchester. I mean, quite extraordinary what the Quakers did. 
and uh, they invested, they built a school and employed a schoolmaster. They trained the girls in various, uh, well, I suppose, domestic uh, accomplishments that would help them when they emigrated. And it did help them when they emigrated. They had a skill and they trained the boys in farming. And uh, how that stood by them or not, I don't know, because they, they were at this stage, the famine was at such a peak that emigration was the only possible way out. And I remember that this man took, uh, I think he organized and had paid for a passage of something like 6,000 Connemara people to emigrate to America. He did, yeah. And I know he some did. people think it was terrible that they were... They had to emigrate. Of course, they, they had to emigrate. There was literally nothing but starvation and extreme poverty here. In America, if they had a skill, they were, you know, they would prosper and their children would particularly prosper. If they remained where they did in the mountains of Connemara, there was nothing. No, so, emigration was about survival. It was about survival. It was as simple and knows. basic as I that. Know, yeah. And took. Yeah. That's why I say Tuke should be, you're perfectly right in that he paid for the passage of so many people. Isn't it extraordinary? And they survived as a result. They did. They did. Yeah. And you see, if they had, if the girls had some domestic skill, they could get a job as a domestic in New York or Boston. And their children, that woman's children, she probably married someone else that might have worked in the staff of the house. Their children probably went to university. And so very quickly, in the space of a generation or two, they were moving up the ladder. And of course, yeah. we see today the enormous loyalty of Irish Americans to Ireland, including its wonderful president. <laughs> we yes, get a great welcome when he comes here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Tom, I love what you do about the Cladder and other things in town because you get the names of people who lived in the houses and i assume you've done the same with the parade but you know that's very valuable like you know gradually a jigsaw of the town is coming together you're getting the names and i'm sure you're corrected if you get them wrong and Most you must certainly. be building up a tremendous archive at the moment uh happily i am yeah and i refer to it and use it all i mean it's it is not just a kind of a a redundant lot of documents and books and things. I use it constantly. Yeah. And uh, it's part of the fun doing yes. these pieces in the paper, yeah. Ronnie, is the research. I know. All the fun is really in the research. <laughs> they tend to write themselves. Oh, I agree. I like yeah. it myself. I like it yeah. myself. <laughs> yeah. I know. Well, I, I'm doing, I'm, I'm still on about uh, Roger Casement this week because I can't quite let him go. Roger Casement is a very much neglected man. And really, he played a key role in the Easter Rising. The first role he played was very, very important. He imported weapons, came into Hoth from uh, Belgium, which he paid for and organized himself. And then, of course, he was to come back on the eve of the Rising from Germany. He'd hoped to bring troops, 40,000 German soldiers. That didn't happen. He hoped to bring an Irish brigade made up of the uh, Irish soldiers fighting in the British army, prisoners of Germany. He hoped to bring them back as a, as a brigade. That didn't happen. But he did come back with a boatload of arms, the odd, which of course we know 
was challenged by the British Navy and it sank. So he failed in that, but he still was a key man sufficiently for the Dublin volunteers after the sinking of the Ord, when they knew the country would have no weapons. The Dublin volunteers had weapons thanks to him, and they came out, as we know, on Easter Monday. So Casement really, you know, played such a pivotal role in both his success and failure that it's a pity to see him so neglected. But my spotlight this week actually is on Owen O'Neill. Owen O'Neill was the the, the founder of the, he was a, an academic in Dublin, we know. He was the founder of the Conrad uh, Nagelga, a co-founder, and a co-founder of the Irish Volunteers. And when the weapons came in from, from uh, through Hoth, the uh, Dublin Volunteers, instead of being a rather gentle movement, because he was a gentle man, he was an academic, he was not into violence. But when the weapons came in and it was, they were taken by the Dublin Volunteers, suddenly the hard men, the hotheads, if you like, the Connollys, the, oh, the Pierce, Clark, McDermott, they joined then the Dublin Volunteers to have access to weapons. And they were quite happy to have uh, Owen McNeil as its chairperson, as its chief executive, because he, he was a kind of a decoy. The British uh, security people were thrown off by him. You know, he, he was a lecturer in college. He was a, an Irish scholar, a great Irish language enthusiast. Really, violence was not in his nature, but by golly, he brought on board men that were determined there would be a showdown. So I'm putting the spotlight on McNeil this week. And of course, he felt he was hard done by. He wasn't brought into their confidence of the hotheads until the very end when he challenged them. They said yes. And the rebellion, it cannot be stopped at this stage. Uh, McNeil was very distressed to hear that. He said, I, I, you know, I haven't approved of this. This goes beyond, uh, you know, the, the normal state of affairs, the normal way we, we have command and word is passed down from command, but you've done this without my knowledge. And then, of course, it was to go ahead. And unfortunately, then on Good Friday morning, early hours of Good Friday morning, the odd was scuttled, the weapons for the volunteers throughout Ireland were out of the question, and they went back to McNeil and told him the story. And at this stage, the poor man was, well, I don't say poor man because he was quite a strong fellow. He said, right, I'm on your side now because Britain is going to come down with us like a ton of bricks. I will stand by you and we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll face whatever, you know, whatever the outcome is, we will face it together. But when they left, thinking everything is okay, he changed his mind. And he thought an Irish rebellion without weapons throughout the country were just asking for a bloodbath. So he issued the famous advertisement in the Sunday Independent, which I'm publishing this week, actually, which I managed to get hold of. Anyway, you know me, Tom, I get caught up. As you say, the research is the thing. <laughs> the story yeah. is the thing. And Ireland is full of stories. Indeed, and it's that that keeps us enthusiastic. Oh, isn't it just exactly that? Yeah, exactly yeah that. it's one of the things I have discovered uh, writing this thing every week is that uh, everybody has a story. Everybody. Right. It yeah. doesn't matter what part of Galway they come from. 
and they are full of surprises. Yes. I wrote a couple of weeks ago about the burning of the Sinn Féin Hall. Well, yesterday I met the grandson of the caretaker of really? the Sinn Féin Hall. And and he had a different slant on the thing. It was lovely, you know, yeah. and uh, I think, yeah, and that is the joy of it. Everybody does yeah. have their own story. Yeah. Well, I met the grandson of Owen McNeil, who is uh, Michael McDowell, the former Tornister and Minister for Justice. You know, yeah, I wish I'd met right. him recently. I could talk to him about his grandfathers. I'm sure he has a lot of information there. But McNeil suffered then for all of that. And um, we know what happened. That the rebellion was just in Dublin. Uh, there was a few outings throughout the country and in Galway indeed, but of course it was hopeless without proper weapons. But Dublin, as we know, lasted all the way through to the Saturday and terrible damage of central Dublin. Um, and, you know, McNeil, I think, suffered poor publicity because uh, a lot of the hotheads thought that he had let them down. But I think he, in, in retrospect, he certainly made the right decision. And he continued in political life. Uh, he was elected from Sinn Féin, a member of the Dáil. Uh, he was elected to English Parliament, but he wouldn't take his seat in English Parliament. He was elected to the Dáil. I think he became Minister for Education. I haven't really followed it up because I'm sort of finished with him at the moment now. He was certainly a member of the Boundaries Commission, uh, which, you know, separated also from the rest of Ireland. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, so, but I mean, you're quite right. These people all have relatives, all have families, and I'm sure they have great stories to tell. We must meet them all, Tom, before we, they all die off, including <laughs> ourselves. Indeed. Including ourselves. I remember many years ago, this is well over 40 years ago, <clears throat> there was a Mrs. Linsky who lived on Bridge Street, and uh, it was her 100th birthday. And with the family's permission, I went in with Jimmy Welch. He took her photograph and I spoke to her. And her earliest memory was <clears throat> kneeling on the Salmonweir Bridge with a lot of clad women praying. And I said, what? Salmonweir? How, how do you know they were clad women? I can still see the triangles of shawl. Said, as they knelt on the bridge. Yeah. And what were you praying for? Oh, there was some fella, they were going to kill him the next day. They were going to, they were going to hang him. Uh, uh, Joyce, Joyce was his name. She was there. The morning the of the execution. Execution of the man yeah. 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 I couldn't believe it. I ran back to the bookshop yeah. to check the dates. Yeah. And sure enough, she was. She was about three and a half years old. Yeah. But here was a tangible oh, yeah. hold on history, it's on terribly, local history. It was extraordinary. It's yeah, it's terribly interesting. We're also blessed with very good historians in Galway, a great tradition of historians in Galway in the university. Um, yeah. You know, we're really lucky. And we've got journals like the Journal of the Archaeological and Historical Society, really... It's, it's magnificent. That is a wonderful journal um, that yes, hopefully archive. is available to everybody because it's full of great stories uh, and great scholarship, you know. So the stories you and I talk about now are taken seriously and the good ones are noted and um, they're there for posterity. Hopefully. 
Anyway, Tom, listen, we have another again. We have a book each in what we're saying this week, which is great. <laughs> I'm afraid we're limited to a certain space. But yeah. look, Tom, that's lovely. A pleasure to I love those stories of the clatter. And um shall we hold it there then? And yep. we talk again next week. Talk again next week. You betcha. Take care, have John. Have a good day. Enjoy the weather. Enjoy the lovely day. <laughs>